The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I mean, you hear rumbles sometimes of them trying to back-channel to the, you know, the Kremlin. Well, we should think about negotiations, or maybe there's a peaceful outcome to the war. And I think that sometimes in the U.S. we forget that it's not the oligarchs running the country. It's it's very much the other way around. They exist and thrive because Putin has you know, put them in positions. And so, you know, if you know, maybe because of Wagner's outsized presence in the war. There would be some opportunity for the West to try to co-opt Prigozhin to maybe get him to bring people around. I don't hear intelligence officials talking about that, probably because it's it's probably not all that feasible. But when people talk about a world after Putin, one that sometimes they imagine is one in which Prigozhin potentially has, you know, huge influence or, you know, maybe he even has designs on the presidency himself. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for June 1st, 2023. The war in Ukraine is approaching a pivotal moment. Russia remains in control of the hotly contested city of Bakhmut, but the ruthlessly effective mercenary forces of the Wagner Group, the same group whose leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has openly bickered with the regular Russian military and reportedly offered to trade Russian troop positions to Ukrainian intelligence, are withdrawing. Ukrainian forces, meanwhile, are preparing for a reported counteroffensive, even as unclaimed attacks are taking place across the border in Russia including, most recently, on a civilian target in Moscow. To discuss these developments, I sat down with two reporters covering the conflict for The Washington Post, intelligence and national security reporter Shane Harris and Ukraine bureau chief Isabel Kershudyan. We discussed the peculiar role played by the Wagner Group, recent revelations stemming from the Discord leaks, and what to expect from the conflict in the months to come. It's the Lawfare podcast for June 1st, the Wagner Group, Bakhmut, and a new phase in the Ukraine war. So we've seen a really eventful couple of days, really last week in Ukraine, particularly around the city of Bakhmut, which has become a major focus of the conflict, uh, particularly involving the Wagner Group, a group of mercenaries, fairly notorious mercenaries at this point. That is really the original reason we came together to talk, although some things have come together and occurred since we originally scheduled this discussion that we want to work in as well. But let's start here with a little bit of background for listeners who may not have been following the developments on the ground in Ukraine as closely as as you two have. First, tell us a little bit about Bakhmut. Why is it Bakhmut has become the focus of the conflict at this particular stage? In what ways is it the focus of the conflict? And its strategic significance 
and if not strategic significance, maybe symbolic significance, why it's become such a focus really for both sides at this phase of the conflict. Isabel, let me start with you. Yeah, I think the strategic significance could certainly be argued, right? Western officials, analysts all say not that strategically significant. But for Ukraine, you know, I think at some point they started to see Bakhmut as this sort of bloody vortex that they could use strategically. They noticed how, you know, Russia was paying so much attention to it. Obviously, Wagner was the main kind of units fighting there. And Ukrainian generals have told me they consider Wagner to be the most effective of Russia's units because of kind of the brutal tactics they use where they send these small assault groups of 15 to 20, you know, soldiers at a time uh, with kind of little care for, you know, if those guys die or not. And that wears down the Ukrainians and also causes a lot of losses on the Ukrainian side. But you know, for the Ukrainians, while they were preparing for this counteroffensive that we think we'll see in the coming weeks, they kind of saw Bakhmut as their opportunity to, you know, just kill a lot of Russian soldiers, basically, and sort of exhaust the Russian military potential before a counteroffensive. I think for the Russians, it's incredibly symbolic just because they've placed a lot of importance on it. And, you know, it's something that is talked about in their media. I mean, very few Russians would have known what Bakhmut is, where it is, anything about it before uh, February 24th of last year. Uh, But it has become this kind of focus. And in the same way, it's become symbolic for the Ukrainians, too, that, you know, they call it a fortress. There's like a band that create a whole song about how it's a fortress. And so it's neither side wanting to kind of give it up and give up kind of this symbolic victory. So this Wagner group that you've already mentioned, it has played this really unique role in the conflict as a whole, certainly, but particularly in Bakhmut. Um, You know, we've seen reports, I think, in the last week, I think in some of your reporting, that has highlighted the fact they're giving out medals to people who have survived the meat grinder, uh, which I think is, is the way it was described in the article of Bakhmut. And yet now we're seeing this interesting stage where they appear to be exiting the stage from Bakhmut, having claimed a victory, having claimed to play a central role in seizing control of it, then very quickly beginning to move their troops off the front lines. Shane, tell us a little bit about the role Wagner has played, why it's come step in to play this role, and and what its potential departure might mean strategically on the ground for Russians and for Ukrainians. I think one big reason they've been kind of, you know, maybe front and center in Bakhmut is like what Isabel said, they're effective. They're, they're more effective than the Russian military. And you know, for Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the the leader of the Wagner Group, the story of Bakhmut has also been one of tremendous frustration on his part and has seen this incredible kind of rift that's formed between him and, you know, officials in Moscow, namely, you know, at the head of the Ministry of Defense and the generals who are sort of nominally running the war. And, you know, I don't know if he's directly taken a shot at Putin, but implicitly in criticizing both the Russian military's conduct of the war overall and what he says has been the lack of support that's been given to his forces in Bakhmut. He really has kind of opened this like set of you know divisions and these rivalries that we're seeing play out now. And it got so extreme at various points during 
the recent kind of height of the fighting that Prigozhin was at some points threatening to just pull his troops out altogether, basically, if he didn't get what he wanted. And we can see from a number of these leaked intelligence documents that we've been reporting on at the Post that the heads of the Russian Ministry of Defense understood that he had a point and that they had to come up with some way to try and counter this because they you know, seemed to think that they weren't giving him enough support either. So, you know, for him to now be kind of walking off the stage, as it were, I guess is maybe not unexpected in the sense that he's never really wanted to be, it seems to me anyway, all in on Bakhmut. But to the degree that they can now say they've captured the city, it's almost as if he can say, OK, well, my work here is done. I'm moving on. I doubt that'll be the last we hear about him criticizing the overall conduct of the military. But I think that it's been remarkable how this battle, for all the reasons that Isabel said, was just kind of this grudge match between the Ukrainians and the Russians, also exposed these rivalries at the heart of the, you know, of Russian military power, of which, you know, while he is a private military contractor, he is a part of that apparatus and an indispensable one. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Russia, you know, can't afford not to have Wagner forces fighting with them. Yeah, it's a battle of more than 10 months, the longest of the Ukrainian war. Uh, and I think for Wagner to leave, that's their way of saying, we did it, we won. And that's Prigozhin's way of claiming a victory, which I think was really important to him because he has been so outspoken, he needs a way to show uh, that there was a reason for that, that he did accomplish something to kind of give himself more cred. Do we have a sense about how Pergozin fits into this pretty diverse ecosystem of military actors fighting on the Russian side? We have the Russian standard military along with some Russian kind of elite forces, you know, Spetnaz groups and things like that, um, that get deployed that are, I think, generally more effective than the rank and file of more recent, recent conscriptees and don't come in with a lot of training or supplies. Then we have Wagner Group as one of these kind of irregular support forces, uh, increasingly irregular kind of as the conflict went on, as they turned to inmates that were being conscripted from uh, Russian prisons, although there are now reports of that happening in the regular Russian military. And then you also have groups like the Chechen forces that have come in, particularly early in the conflict. Uh, my understanding, although I'd welcome correction on this, is that they've also pushed back, but maybe perhaps more quietly and uh, kind of declined to play the kind of leading role they did early in the conflict. What do, how does Wagner fit into that and Pergozin fit into that? And what can we tell about his dynamic with Putin, with the other military forces that might have led into this position? And is it changing? Is this a sign of strength on his part or a sign of weakness? Well, the number of Wagner forces is not as high as the number of regular Russian military forces, but it's a sizable component of the overall force. And when, when U.S. officials talk about this, whether it's intelligence officials or the Pentagon, and you see this kind of in these leaked documents too – I mean, they speak of Wagner as a component of the overall force. So they measure Wagner casualties. They measure, you know, where they are, what role they're playing, you know, in various assaults and Bakhmut being, you know, the most dramatic. So it's it's not like they're sort of – they're not in the mix because they are a separate unit. But they're kind of this indispensable arm, if you want to think of it, of the larger machine. And I think the Ukrainian estimation of them has been that they are the more effective force. They fight differently uh, than the the regular Russian military. They're better trained, I think, in some cases, although, you know, Wagner is also drawing from the kind of the prison population that the military has drawn from, and they seem to have kind of fought over that access as well. But it, it is overall a more sophisticated, I think, military. And what's also interesting is that 
you know, Wagner is more well known for, you know, the private military work that it does outside of Ukraine. And I mean, it's in Africa, really, where Prigozhin, you know, essentially provides security for state officials and apparatuses, in some cases in exchange for things like mineral rights, you know, and, 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 and you know, sort of, you know, natural resources contracts. He kind of has an empire that he's built. And what's always been fascinating to me is that, you know, while he – has been in the fight in Ukraine, it seems like he regards the overall conduct of this war. He never says it explicitly, so I'm projecting a little bit here. As I wouldn't say he thinks he is a waste of time, but I think he might see it as not the best use of Wagner's resources. You know, he's not been pulling, as far as we can tell, from, for instance, from the troops that he has in Africa to bring those people up and fight in Ukraine. He's drawing from the prison populations. He's not committed to using what he might see as his best fighters. And there's always this question, and Isabel can speak to this probably better than I can, about, you know, does he have political designs in Moscow? People talk about whether or not he would try and actually challenge, you know, the, the Shoigu, the head of the Ministry of Defense, or, you know, whether he would even have aspirations to be president himself. So he is this political actor. And, you know, we can get into this later if you want to, but like Americans know him because of his role in interfering in the 2016 election right. as well. So, I mean, he has this kind of outsized presence that involves information, intelligence operations, the military, the work in Africa. He's a much more – he's a very dynamic character in all of this. Uh, and I just have to imagine that he probably, you know, sees the resources he's having to expend in Ukraine uh, and, and is probably questioning whether, you know, it was, it was worth the investment for him. Yeah, to Shane's point, there's sort of two Wagners. There are the penal battalions, you know, the prisoners that they recruit uh, who are more dispensable, who you kind of – if you survive for six months, then you get pardoned. And those guys, the tactics they use with them are really brutal but effective. And then you've got the more experienced Wagner who are well-trained, who have experience, you know, with these operations abroad – you know, in many cases, way more experienced than pretty much anybody else in the Russian military. So I think the Ukrainians do draw a distinction between them. Uh, but interestingly, with Prigozhin, sort of to speak to, you know, his kind of character in Russia and how he's perceived, I guess, state media doesn't really give him a lot of airtime, right? He does these, you know, videos and addresses, and he's got his Telegram channel where he posts all of his updates. Uh, but state media doesn't talk about him. And maybe that is because he's considered a threat or too outspoken. He doesn't get a lot of airtime uh, in actual Russia. He's also very combative with, and we have experienced that he's very combative with reporters and has this kind of interesting way of when you go to him for questions, we'll try to almost preempt what you're writing mm. by essentially going on Telegram and saying, you know, these crazy reporters from the Washington Post are asking me these questions. He he seems to have a very – I mean a pretty sharp sense of the information environment is I guess how an intelligence official would put it, right? He understands the power of propaganda, of, com of communications um, and, and, you know, and to Isabel's point, knows that he can find ways to get his voice out and his point of view across. And even though he might not have the coverage in state media, people in Moscow and the positions of power hear him. And again, we see that reflected in some of those leaked documents where they, you know, these these ministers in the, in the MOD basically saying, oh, we got to figure out what to do about this because, you know, he's making us look like jerks that we're not providing the weapons that he needs. So what do we know of Prigozhin as a personality, as an individual that, that brings into it the fact that he's got this combative nature or frankly this 
derive for the limelight perhaps a little bit and very consciously putting himself forward on Telegram, building to some extent a degree of personal brand, perhaps in spite of the efforts of the state media pushing back on that. We know the rumors are always he was Putin's chef. He came in on a kind of contractor basis running uh, different catering contracts and he's kind of become an oligarch. And the Wagner thing is kind of a more recent chapter, that being such a focus. What's the trajectory that led him here that might inform some of the psychology behind these moves? You know, I can't really think of that many other people that well-placed as far as Kremlin inner circle goes or that influential who have been that critical of, you know, the defense minister. I mean, he's even been critical of Putin himself in the sense that he says Putin's not getting information or he's too isolated from the real kind of story. I do think he's fallen in and out of favor, but ultimately kind of unique compared to a lot of other people in Moscow. He's needed. He's got leverage. They absolutely need Wagner uh, because the rest of the Russian military just you know, isn't getting it done in a lot of cases. And I think what's so interesting about him is if you look at his trajectory, really in the past, you know, we could take maybe the best seven or eight years or so. He knows that he's needed, as Isabel said, and he also keeps himself kind of a step removed. He is a contractor, right? He is not a government employee. He's not a politician. He's not elected to office. He said Scott, as you know, he was known as Putin's chef because the company, the catering company he ran had all these contracts to provide food service, you know, for the Kremlin which is kind of funny. I mean, it's like it's not like he's, I think, Putin's chef, like he's cooking for him in the kitchen. But you see these pictures of him, you know, presenting, you know, these you right. know, elaborate plates to Putin. He's kind of seen as somebody who is there in a way to serve, but is also bringing something, you know, literally to the table, I guess, in that case. <laughs> um, you know, he runs this, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, this this information operation as, as an adjunct to the intelligence services that is propagating uh, memes and social media you know, in the 2016 election. He's ultimately indicted by the Justice Department on interfering with the, with the U.S. elections and is sanctioned. Again, that's something that is not within the intelligence agencies. It's something that's off to the side of it. And Wagner is also this kind of separate empire that he has built that operates in state-like ways and the ways that it, you know, gets, you know, mineral rights in exchange for providing security and has contracts with other governments, not just Russia. So he's built this power base that is kind of, you know, right outside the center of, of, of power in Russia and, you know, is not afraid to challenge that authority. I mean, to me, it's what makes him so interesting is that he you know, on the one hand, he can seem frankly unhinged in some of these telegram messages, which many of them are incoherent. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I don't think it's just that something's lost in translation. I think it's just kind of – he's like these stem winders. But he knows precisely what he's doing. This is not an out-of-control person. This is somebody who, you know, has built, you know, power bases and knows how to exert that leverage. And to me, like as a reporter, I like watching him to see how far he can actually go. Because I think a lot of us probably in Washington were like, well, is this guy just going to get axed or something? Like, no, he, he's clearly indispensable. Maybe no one's indispensable in Putin's Russia. But you can kind of get a sense for what the dynamics of the overall Russian system are by watching how he pokes and prods it and how far he can go and the degree to which you know Moscow just has to tolerate him. What's interesting about sort of him during you know this war in Ukraine is – I mean, for years, he wasn't supposed to really be in the limelight, right? He was supposed to be kind of the actor that gave the Kremlin plausible deniability. You know, all of this meddling they did abroad, whether it was the U.S., Africa, whatever, it was done through him to kind of give the Kremlin some distance. And now he has been thrust into the limelight because, you know, the fact that Wagner 
is fighting with the Russian military uh, sort of hand in hand is very public and in a way that strengthens his position as well. Do we know the extent to which his operations, his significance influence can stand independent of Putin now? I mean, most of these oligarchs, as the kind of caterer for Putin title kind of suggests, it's largesse. It's a handout. It's uh, something that you don't get if Putin doesn't like you. But Wagner has expanded dramatically, does have these individual contractual relationships. Now, maybe they don't mean that much if Putin exercises certain forms of leverage. But does he really have a contrary center of gravity that allows him to stand with some independence? And is that unique? Are there other oligarchs in a similar position that we see can be able to exercise this sort of pushback on the base of that center of gravity? Or, or has he really developed something unique here? And do we know what makes it unique? I think it is unique because, I mean, what Putin did in his 20 plus years, you know, of reign is reduce the power of oligarchs. I mean, that's how he consolidated his own powers. He kind of kept them in check. And that did allow him to start this war, right? That even though it was damaging to them financially, they can't really do anything about it. Where you do see Prigozhin, at the very least, you know, criticizing the system and asking for this and that. And it is, again, because they sort of need him because he is leaned on operationally in a way that other oligarchs aren't. But, you know, if he's to believed as far as their ammunition problems, he does still rely on the government and everything else as well. And he knows, too, that the the, the fate of the Russian military and, and his forces are tied together. I mean, he can't – I mean, he can't just simply, you know, completely, I guess, strip off and – you know, think that he's going to fight his war on his own in Ukraine. I mean, it's it's sort of they're all going to sink or swim together here a bit. And I think that if not for that indispensable fighting force that he's providing, I can't imagine a world in which he gets away with saying some of the things or even attempts to. The fact that he is openly, you know, courting a rivalry or engaged in a rivalry with these officials, I don't think it's just peak or it's frustration. There's some kind of, you know, game that he seems to be playing here. And he knows that that's his position. And it seems like he's going to kind of he's going to use that. But, you know, to, to your to your point, Scott, I don't and just just to agree with Isabel, you don't see any other major oligarchs, really any oligarchs at all challenging openly that way. I mean, you hear rumbles sometimes of them trying to back channel to, to you know, the Kremlin well, we should think about negotiations or maybe there's a peaceful outcome to the war. And I think that sometimes in the U.S. we forget that it's not the oligarchs running the country. It's it's very much the other way around. They exist and thrive because Putin has kind of put them in positions. And so, you know, if, you know, maybe because of Wagner's outsized presence in the war, there would be some opportunity for the West to try to co-opt Prigozhin to maybe get him to bring people around. I don't hear intelligence officials talking about that probably because it's it's probably not all that feasible. But when people talk about a world after Putin, one that sometimes they imagine is one in which Prigozhin potentially has you know huge influence or you know maybe he even has designs on the presidency himself. I don't hear other oligarchs spoken about that way. Well, that actually is a great transition to the the one of the latest stories about Prigozhin that's such a mystery, which is this offer that you all broke the story of based off some reporting from the Discord leaks initially, suggesting that in fact Prigozhin had approached has first off has an existing relationship with Ukrainian intelligence services. Yep. That's maybe not shocking right. actually, but you know a little interesting, certainly notable. I then felt comfortable to approach, although big question about how seriously. Them with an offer saying, oh, we're going to horse trade territory around Bakhmut 
troop positions for Russian regular forces in exchange for slices of territory, you know, making some sort of bargain or at least proposing some sort of bargain that frankly would have allowed Wagner to succeed at the expense of the Russian regular military forces. Isabel, do we have a sense about how seriously that offer was taken by the Ukrainians and how it's how it's received by Ukrainians and Russians and others who maybe are closer to Prigozhin and have a better sense of what's realistic and what's not? Were they serious officers offers or was this much more of a one of these strange eclectic things this guy does for attention? I don't think the Ukrainians took it seriously. And, you know, obviously they didn't take the offer, but, you know, as far as how Russians see it. I'm not sure because I, I don't think it's something that you will get a lot of, you know, airtime there. In Russia, the Discord leaks has been, you know, framed as this, you know, fake information operation. I think it's something that, you know, Prigozhin is going to use to be like, oh, the Americans are trying to weaken me. And so it'll get spun. But, you know, for the Ukrainians, I think it makes sense that they keep those channels open because they understand the influence that he does have and, you know, the capability of Wagner. But at the same time, you know, they talk to him, but offers like that, you know, they're not engaging on necessarily. I keep thinking, too, about whether let's just say the Ukrainians had actually called his bluff, <clears throat> which to be clear, I don't think they would have, you know, said, yeah, sure, we'll pull out our forces <laughs> in Bakhmut in, in exchange for some, you know, some troop locations. But, you know, we don't know enough about exactly the dynamic of the Ukraine channel to Prigozhin, but I do wonder if they called his bluff on that, would he actually do it? And I mean, the fact that he even put forward the idea, to me, always struck me as like, wow, this is a guy who is, you know, basically he's laying his cards on the table of what he cares the most about. And he had been openly complaining about the losses that Wagner forces were taking in Bakhmut. And I don't know that he ever said, you know, Bakhmut is a folly. But I mean, if you kind of read between the lines here, I think he probably would agree with a lot of Western officials saying, why are we wasting our time on this? So to me, that that offer that he made was something of a sign that maybe underscoring a bit of desperation. You know, the Ukrainians, it seems like the ones that, I, you know, people I've talked to, and you kind of see this too in the documents, in the leaked documents, um, are always wary of whether he's just playing a head fake with them, whether this is some kind of information operation. He's trying to psych them out. U.S. officials have told me that they, they wondered that too. But it's just so fascinating to see him playing this kind of on multiple levels, you know, keeping this channel open in the first place, which could be very, very risky as well. I mean, he, he just presents to me anyway as a much more strategic and dynamic thinker than the people who are actually running Russia's war, who seem just incredibly like, you know, <clears throat> on one note, basically, yeah. which is just like pushing people like into this, you know, this meat grinder. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we know now Wagner is moving its troops out. They announced they were going to do this last week. And I think as recently as this past weekend, the Washington Post reported for folks on the ground confirming we're seeing Wagner troops being replaced by regular troops in the field. Generally, too positive reception by Ukrainian troops who are more excited about fighting Russian regular troops than Wagner troops. What does this mean actually for both the conflict over Bakhmut moving forward? We know Ukrainians are at least saying they intend to try and first, they actually haven't conceded Bakhmut entirely has fallen, uh, at least not entirely conceded that point. They're indicating they still have footholds and they still intend to move on Bakhmut potentially. But perhaps more importantly, as as you laid out for us, Isabel, in your in your you know opening remarks. Bakhmut's really just the appetizer to the big counteroffensive that we're expecting to open now that weather is warm uh, and that this kind of prime fighting conditions in Ukraine. What does Wagner's, I guess, withdrawal mean for Bakhmut and for that broader offensive? And where might it be repositioned? Where are we expecting them to pop up next if they are conserving resources for another fight? Yeah, I mean, I think that's my big question, too, is where are they going <laughs> And, you know, maybe the Ukrainians already know the answer to that, but that is going to be maybe the next area of focus. You know, the Ukrainians, there's been activity on the flanks of Bakhmut where you've seen the Ukrainians try to maybe get some territory back and attempt like an encirclement of the Russians there. Uh, but Ukraine has been keeping its main brigades, units that it plans to use for the counteroffensive away from Bakhmut and really away from the battlefield in general, uh, to kind of get those units ready and then, you know, send them wherever they're going to send them for the counteroffensive. Probably, you know, south to Zaporizhia to kind of go for Militopol and cut off this land corridor to Crimea. So maybe, you know, I think the entire world is expecting it to be there. Maybe Wagner goes there. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they fight if it's defensive rather than this offensive kind of small group onslaught that they've been doing. And, you know, Ukraine's land forces commander, uh, Alexander Sirsky, had told me that tactic doesn't work with regular Russian units. Um, they just won't do it. Uh, and they're not that expendable. Uh, so, you know, I think it is curious how they're going to be used going forward if they'll try that same, you know, grinding style offensive somewhere else, or if Prigozhin's like, no, we've lost too many people, um, and they'll try to, you know, more defensive, perhaps in Zaporizhia region. And just to elaborate on that too, I think just even in the recent days and weeks, you've heard, you know, people in the West, both analysts and some officials, kind of privately talking about whether or not the Russian defenses that are, you know, seem to be so formidable in these areas, whether they'll actually will hold. And there's even some question about that, and whether. You know, they're as strong as people think, whether Ukraine could mount a more, you know, a concerted offense. And I think where you see Wagner go next is going to be the indication of where Moscow feels that it's vulnerable. And if they do go into this defensive position, I think you could start to see kind of, you know, narratives matter in war. And if it's seen as like now they're on the back foot in a way that they weren't in Bakhmut, maybe that sort of gives more momentum, you know, to, to Ukraine and, you know, in, in sort of, you know, a force of will behind them is saying like this counteroffensive is actually working. So you can kind of use Wagner as a bit of a barometer in that context, I think. I do think we'll start to see or we'll continue to see rather more activity around Bakhmut, even from the Ukrainians, as sort of 
a way to keep Russian forces there. I mean, that was always the goal is let's tie up as many Russian forces as we can. And so all of this kind of counteroffensive actions they do on the flanks, I think that plays into it, too. They don't want Wagner to leave Bakhmut uh, because they're just going to be a problem somewhere else. Uh, so if your main counteroffensive effort is in a different area, you want to keep trying to do something or push on Bakhmut to kind of keep, if not Wagner, then, you know, regular Russian units there. Yeah, it may prove to actually be a very strategically wise move that the Ukrainians – I've wondered, you know, whether you will look back and think that, you know, Bakhmut was a folly for for Ukraine. It may be just the opposite, that it was Moscow's folly ultimately because – you know, the, the Russians may have played it exactly the way that the Ukrainians were hoping. You know, Prigozhin, you know, basically hightailing it out just as soon as, you know, it's like, yep, got this under control. We're out of here. I mean, it tells you where he's thinking, which is just like, I'm not spending one more day in this place that I have to. Yeah. It's a fascinating set of developments in, the, in this conflict. But it's not the only set of developments we've seen the last few days. And so since we have you in the studio, we weren't originally planning to discuss a few of these other items. News happens. News happens, and it keeps happening. So I want to turn to them. And I I should note we're recording on May 30th. This is going to come out for another day or two. So more things may yet happen that we won't have a chance to discuss here. But we've seen two major things happen, really, in the last day. One on the Russian side, one the last few days, one on the Russian side, one on the Ukrainian side. On the Russian side, we've seen a brutal barrage of Kiev and other Ukrainian cities hitting civilian targets above the scale of what Russia has typically been doing, kind of perhaps rea- reaction to the announcement of F-16 training programs and new forms of assistance to the Ukrainians by the West. Who knows exactly what's triggered it? And then just in the last 24 hours, we've seen reports of a drone hitting a civilian building in Moscow. Um, this comes on the follow-on on, I think, a week or two ago, reports of a pair of drones being taken down over the Kremlin. Um, neither one has been attributed to anyone officially. No one's accepted responsibility for those attacks. Um, but the widespread suspicion, uh, at least being reported, is that they are Ukrainian or at least Ukrainian sympathizers. Um, this is on top of some interesting border action we've seen where you've seen another sort of unaligned but anti-Russian group hop across the border, actually make attack in Russian territory. Uh, we also see an artillery hitting targets in Russian territory. This is all happening Again, in a way, particularly the actions happening in Russia that are not being attributed, not being accepted officially by the Ukrainian government. But we do know from some recording you all have done from the Discord cables as well, the Discord leaks, that we have reports from U.S. intelligence that uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky and other senior Ukrainians have been much more bullish on putting direct pressure on Russia, including attacks in Russian territory, than they've been public about. Um, no doubt, in part, in substantial part, in concern about hitting the escalation button in a way the Western supporters were not comfortable with. What do we make of these attacks? What should we be making of them? Are these things that pretty clearly seem tied back to the Ukrainian government, or are there really such substantial independent forces that are capable of doing things like this against the Russians, but in support of the Ukrainian position or sympathizing with them somehow? Is that a credible story, or is this inevitably seem like uh, another ratchet towards some sort of escalation? And if so, where does that lead, at least on the Russian behalf, given that the Russians, frankly, have gone so all in on this conflict as it stands? I think with the drone strikes, I mean, that sort of fits the Ukrainian MO at this point, whether they officially claim it or not, and they won't. But, you know, we have seen a pattern where, you know, targets are being hit with drones from the Discord leaks. We know that, you know, 
multiple times Ukrainian officials from Kirill Ubudanov, the head of, you know, Gore, to Zelensky, to Zeluzhny, talking about how they can reach certain targets in Russia. And, you know, maybe some of these drones are actually, you know, set off in Russia by special operators. I'm not sure exactly the mechanics of how it gets done, but it follows a pattern where, you know, we believe Ukrainians are involved in high level of Ukrainians are kind of commissioning this. And for them, it's pretty simple. They want regular Russians to feel the war. You know, they tell me that quite often that regular Russians should feel like there's a war going on, not a special military operation in another country. And that's a way to also put pressure on the Kremlin eventually, you know, whether it's through negotiations down the road or just, you know, a public fear that creates a, I think this, you know, incursion or whatever you want to call it into Belgrade kind of follows that same, you know, mindset. But the one on the residential building, that to me feels like a direct sort of retaliation for these attacks in Kyiv that have been pretty nonstop. I mean, people in Kyiv have been sleepless for, you know, the better part of a week and a half now, if not more. Uh, where it's every night you're hearing, you know, the loud effects of air defense or debris is falling on residential buildings. So those attacks on Kyiv are very clearly intended to try and suss out where the air defenses are, to exhaust them, you know, to make Ukraine use its Patriot missiles. You know, they're quite expensive. But, you know, for the Ukrainians, I think they want to be really bold and the whole escalation argument is really annoying to them because for them, it's like, this is escalated. How much more are we going to escalate it? You know, we do this and we don't see it get much more escalated. Uh, so, I mean, they hate every time they hear that. Yeah. Reese, I think sometimes in the, in the U.S. when we watch, you know, these attacks that are happening inside Russia and there's this kind of the flinch of like, oh, God, what are the Ukrainians doing? You know, it, they're not allowed to use American-provided weapons to launch attacks inside Russia. There are no conditions on whether they can build their own drones and find their own way of doing things. And I think it's that's a useful reminder for people who are watching this because this is a country that's been invaded. And of course it's going to launch attacks inside you know, of Russia for all the reasons Isabel just said. And I think that you know, we, we, we kid ourselves if we think you know, that if they had more capability that they wouldn't launch more strikes. I mean in some ways I think what you're seeing is not so much like – maybe it's partly restraint. But also like they just don't have a lot of stuff that they can throw at Moscow. So they've had to become like much more um, innovative and they've done that with the drones, which they've even used on strategic air bases and things like that. But a lot of this I think is just that, that about it. – it's about – taking the psychological fight and upping that, which is about all that they can do. It also serves as a kind of a useful reminder, I think, to Washington, is, which is that, you know, we're here taking all of this punishment in Kiev and in these relentless assaults. You know, when are you going to step in and help us and, 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 and mount more of a defense here? And I think what's so interesting to me about the decision to provide F-16s you know, those are not planes that are going to come online next month, right? That's not that. That's not something that's going to be used in this counteroffensive. Maybe in a counteroffensive in six or eight months or a year after they've been trained. What you're seeing there, though, is a commitment by it seems to me by the U.S. and the West to say basically as a longer term proposition, we are going to turn Ukraine into one of the most heavily fortified militaries in Europe. That is a long term strategy. In the near term, <laughs> Ukraine has to survive. 
right? And I think that there's been a deep amount of frustration, just like Isabel said, around this question of escalation. If if, if this were happening, but by this I mean, you know, drone strikes in Moscow, you know, incursions by, you know, shadowy forces over the border into Russia, um, relentless strikes on apartment buildings in Kiev were happening 10 months ago, I think the attitude and the reaction of Washington would be like, oh, God, this is about to bo- hit the boiling point. We're about to hit the escal- you know, the, the, the magic escalation rung on the ladder. That's That doesn't seem to be what the talk is now. I think most people don't take seriously the idea that Putin is just going to launch a tactical nuclear weapon, which was what everyone was afraid of at the beginning of this. So it's kind of been like the frog in boiling water a bit. And I think what you're seeing here now, it is escalatory. Right. I mean, when you have attacks on civilian targets in your mutual capitals, we have escalated uh, to a a point above where we were. And so I think that that's something to think about as this new, you know, counteroffensive, big string offensive begins. I think it's kind of already begun in a lot of ways. This is what the battle is going to look like. And I think that, you know, people need to be prepared for that, that you're probably going to see more things like this, not sort of a ratcheting down because the stakes are huge and they just kind of, keep getting higher for each side. You've set up exactly the question, the next question I want to ask you, which is what do we, should we expect from this counteroffensive that's coming? Because we're obviously in a new phase of conflict. The Ukrainians are bringing the fight to the Russians. You know, hopefully the attack on a civilian residential building is an exception. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it wasn't an intended target. Maybe it was intended not to be lethal. Obviously it didn't, doesn't appear to have killed anyone as far as we know, although it damaged some residential buildings. But that's a dangerous behavior for any ally, certainly the United States, of a lot of Western European governments who actually take commitments to not target civilians pretty seriously. You know, it's hard to imagine a more brutal phase of the conflict than we've lived through, particularly, frankly, those early months of the conflict. Um, but we've seen that in Bakhmut. We've seen that in other areas. Is that what's going to happen to these other stretches of the country that are about to come the new frontier of this new offensive? Is this a new brutal phase of this conflict that we're running into, more of a Bakhmut at scale, a grind? Um, or is there another element of this conflict? How do we expect this to play out? Well, I think, you know, the Ukrainians now for maybe the past month have been trying to tamp down the expectations for the counteroffensive, mostly because at some point they realized, oh, wait, this got out of control. People think we're just going to clear all of this territory. Yeah. Yeah. Like really, really fast. And they're to blame for that. They did that themselves. But, you know, so I think it's hard to say exactly how it will go. I do expect it to be really difficult for them. And it's not going to be, you know, like when they liberated most of the Kharkiv region in less than a week. I think it is going to be more of a grind. I think you are going to see, you know, more attacks, more retaliation by, you know, the Russian side to kind of punish Ukraine. And then Ukraine will respond. I mean, what we saw in the Discord leaks time and time again is Ukraine wants to be more bold and gets kind of you know, pulled back a little bit by their Western allies. But they also feel like they get rewarded for being bold. I mean, they don't have regrets for that. You know, the drone attacks in Sarata, for example, um, on the Engels airfield, uh, they took out bombers that were being used to hit Ukrainian cities. So I think, will they be able to get all the way to Militopol and cut the land bridge? I don't know. I think most people expect this operation to not be quite that successful. And even the Ukrainians are starting to signal, hey, if we liberate any village, you know, we'll be happy. You know, will we be able to do 50 kilometers or 100 kilometers? We don't know. 
you know, I think they understand that in reality, the most advantageous places to attack the Russian forces, they've already done that. That was Kherson and Kharkiv. Now there are really, really tough defenses, a lot of mines, a lot of these kind of dragon's teeth trenches and all of that stuff that's going to be hard to get through. And it's going to lead to a lot of losses on the Ukrainian military side. I think it's just really important to underscore something that Isabel said there too, which is that you hear Ukraine going from this sort of the counteroffensive will be the ultimate victory towards, ah, well, maybe not. Maybe we can elect, reset expectations. And one reason I think that's so important is that, you know, for months now, and they've been doing this very privately, but, you know, U.S. officials and European officials I've spoken to are all saying, look, the counteroffensive here, this spring offensive, sorry, is kind of one more turn at the handle. Like we're ready to let Ukraine go through the cycle, let them do what they're going to do, but no one is expecting that this is going to be the full path to victory. And U.S. intelligence for nearly a year has consistently been saying, you know, that absent a much more significant influx of weapons, Ukraine just simply is not going to be capable of retaking the entire country. So the fact that you hear Ukrainian officials kind of coming back more in line to what the expectations are that U.S. and British and allied officials have – to me, what I see is, you know, an offensive that plays out for some months, and then at some point, it is very much to Ukraine's advantage to say, this is enough, or to find what the enough point is. Because I think Washington has made very clear, this is not a blank check. Ukraine knows that we have an election coming up, that if Donald Trump is elected president, that spigot of aid is probably going to be reduced to a trickle. Um, they're thinking about the future here. And I just think it's so notable that the expectation setting has changed a bit because it seems like Ukraine and its allies are kind of finally getting onto the same sheet of music, which is that once we go through this offensive, you know, barring some, you know, truly, you know, heroic or miraculous success that, you know, sees them retaking Crimea and Vladimir Putin not using a tactical nuclear weapon, which I think people think that he would do if that were actually threatened, there's going to have to be some kind of we need to bring this thing to some kind of ending point for now, whether – I don't know if that looks like a truce. I don't know what the diplomatic outcome of that is. But like it can't be just this ad infinitum. And I think Kiev is starting to maybe get that a little bit. Well, that tees up exactly the closing issue I want to bring to you guys, which is this this theory about where we situate this counteroffensive in the broader conflict now. Because I think what you're saying, Shane, essentially is that this is really the prelude to negotiations of some sort, maybe not almost certainly not negotiations to a final resolution of any of the issues behind this conflict, but uh, a path to ceasefire or a path to a serious uh, step down in these hostilities because of concerns about the window of assistance to Ukraine, um, because frankly of the human toll of the conflict, the economic toll of the conflict. And so the, the question I have then is that we think of these counteroffensive in terms of the military offensive on the ground in Ukraine. It makes sense that if you think you're going to have negotiations in nine months, that you're going to fight to take whatever territory you can in nine months. That means your starting position is that much better. But the other element of negotiation is the psychology and the cost-benefit analysis on the other side. And so is part of this offensive, these actions we're seeing Ukrainians take with apparent more boldness, uh, attacks in Moscow, attacks across the border, open talk about potentially threatening Moscow or threatening Russia, Russians within Russian territory more openly – is that going to be part of this offensive that we see in that they seem to smell some sort of weakness on the Russian side? And if so, what does that weakness look like? Do we know where they think the pressure points are for Putin or whoever the decision makers are, but presumably Putin's the main one on the Russian side? 
And what do we expect them to hit next? Do we have a sense of that? So in the Discord leaks, there actually is a part of it where, you know, Zelensky suggests even, you know, occupying certain Russian border villages to gain leverage in negotiations. So there there is some thought to it. You know, maybe I disagree with Shane a little bit in the fact that I don't know how Ukraine walks into negotiations or walks back from their sort of maximalist position because they have for, you know, really since Bucha, I would say, so that's over a year, been telling their people, we're going to liberate everything to like the 1991 lines. And that includes Crimea, that includes all of Donetsk and Lugansk. And I think politically, you know, the second you agree to a ceasefire or anything short of that, it's like the end for Zelensky potentially. However, I do think maybe the Ukrainian goal is to get to sort of the border of Crimea. They see that as the main, you know, weakness for Putin, right? That Putin cannot lose Crimea. I think if their thought is if we get, you know, close to Crimea and start to threaten that the Russians will come to the table and really be ready, you know, to talk seriously and give something up. But I think a ceasefire especially – that's something the Ukrainians have been really, really adamant against because they see it as basically the past eight years all over again, right? It gives the Russians a chance to regroup, rearm, you know, kind of restart their military industry and then wait for another opportunity to do this all over again. I think the Ukrainians want to sort of get to a point where they can end this once and for all or at least as close to that. And that includes, you know, getting other Western countries to sign on to security guarantees. Like if Russia breaks this agreement, you know, what are the consequences? Because Zelensky's position, I think by law at this point, is he won't negotiate with Putin. So that means it has to go through some third countries. And I suppose you can read the, you know, the British commitment of the longer range missiles and then the F-16s and other Longer range assistance as, as you know, the West basically saying also to Putin, like, we are in this for a long term proposition, you know, even if like, we'll see how this particular offensive goes, but we're not packing up and leaving. We're going to be here and we're going to arm Ukraine and they're going to be stronger, even if they don't gain as much territory as they would like. So because that argues actually against them for arriving at some point of negotiation or, or ceasefire. I mean, there's so many variables to this that that could change. But that that I think is a very important point to underscore too is that you know as much as the ukrainians understand that a political change in the united states could be you know very bad for them in the future at least right now it seems like the message that's being sent from the west is this is much more of a longer term proposition even if privately officials are just sort of like not that they're saying get it out of your system with the offensive but i think they're just very conservative in their estimates of how successful this is going to be and it sounds like you know kiev is kind of agreeing with them to a degree. Yeah. And I do think the Ukrainians believe they're living on borrowed time, right? I think they feel like, okay, next election cycle, you know, we have until like November of next year um, where we have like, we know what we have and we need to get everything done before then. And so I think they see some kind of guaranteed support. And I do believe that if this counteroffensive doesn't go well, there will be much more pressure on them to get to the negotiating table. And they know that, which is why they're starting to maybe change some of their messaging as well, not only to tamper the expectations of their own people, of Ukrainians, but also to maybe signal to the West of, hey, this is really hard. You know, those 
hundred tanks you gave us, you know, are probably not going to be enough. We need more. Um, and, oh, we didn't get the F-16s in time. So we're going to need a second go at this. And, you know, that's part of their messaging as well. We should remember, too, that as much as absolutely they live on borrowed time because I think if Trump is elected, you know, the age dries up. Um, they test Biden's patience, too. And like Biden gets a little pissed when Zelensky asks him, as I understand he did when they met in Japan, you know, hey, we need more stuff. And even if it's just kind of said in a jokey way, I think it irks the Americans. I think that Biden has long kind of felt we're giving you a lot. Um, you know, he's still his red line is still we're not getting into a direct war with Russia. I do wonder, though. Because again, I mean, we're providing now weapons to Ukraine that would have been completely off the table for even considering a year plus ago when the war began. Are there other things that Russia could do that would bring us even bring the U.S. even more to the table? Like if they started hitting more lead, like leadership targets, and even really trying to go after you know Zelensky's headquarters, the headquarters of the military. Would that compel the Americans to do more? So far, it doesn't seem like they've done that. I have to believe that there are also. You know, other countries, notably China, probably saying to Putin, like, you know, <laughs> you don't need to escalate this anymore either. We, we, we'll see, obviously. But I think that, you know, one thing that's just been so remarkable about covering this, you know, this conflict, and I've been covering it from Washington, and Isabel's been, you know, in Ukraine covering it. To me, this doesn't look like where I thought we would be. That Everything is so dynamic. Now, the, the boundaries and the red lines kind of keep changing. You know, expectations are sometimes dashed from what you thought they were going to be a month ago. I mean, you know, U.S. intelligence was saying this thing was basically going to be over like in three or four days, right? And it's been anything but. So, I mean, I think it's just – it's always very good. I think we're talking about this conflict to just be very humble because things can change so quickly and they have so many times. The one thing that has just been though from my perspective a unwavering constant – has been the will to fight on the part of Ukraine. And I mean, the only thing that I ever say is I can never do when covering this is never count them out. Like never, like whatever, uh, you know, you might think or even intelligence officials might try to forecast is like do not count out the will and the ingenuity of these people because they have surprised so many experts time and time again. And that's, you know, that I think is worth keeping in mind as we talk about the next several months of fighting too. Well, that is a wonderful warning to bear in mind as we continue to watch events unfold on the ground in Ukraine and areas surround. But unfortunately, despite there being so much to talk about, we are out of time. Isabel, Shane, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howe, and our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. 
jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.